Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tonight, we're going to get our feet slightly wet with some folk from Kona Moana Whakauka, the Sustainable Seas National Science Challenge. I say slightly wet because we are out on an estuary, but it is low tide. We're heading out across a vast expanse of sand flats on the south shore of the Manukau Harbour. If you've ever flown into Auckland Airport from the south, you'll have gone directly overhead, and in fact, you will hear some planes doing just that. The site is one of 24 in 15 estuaries across the country that are part of a massive nationwide experiment known as the Tipping Points Project. It's looking at how subtle but cumulative impacts can lead to unexpected and profound changes in marine ecosystems. My guides for the day are Conrad Pilditch from Waikato University and Simon Thrush from the University of Auckland. We're following Steph Mangan, Rebecca Gladstone-Gallagher and Kurt Squires, who are dragging a whole lot of equipment across the wet sand on plastic sleds. So across the country what we've done is we've tried to use harbours that have um, different levels of um, turbidity, of muddiness in the water, um, which is an important element of, of the research because, of course, as the water gets cloudier and cloudier, the, the microscopic plants that are the primary source of production in these ecosystems um, are, are more and more shaded, and that potentially influences the way that they're contributing to um, how the system processes nutrients. So working in the Manukau um, is really useful for us because it is a, a large harbour and the water is, is fairly turbid. So these are some of our more turbid sites in the region. And that gives us one end of a spectrum of um, harbours. So at the other end we have um, some clean water sites like Tauranga and Whangatiao um, that allow us to see how things are functioning when the waters are clear. Over time our estuaries are infilling with, with fine sediment as a result of our um, land use practice and so many of our harbours are actually becoming muddier and muddier and the water is becoming browner and browner over time so we are seeing some changes in these systems and those changes we think are having uh, a big impact on the way the ecosystem is functioning and the way it's capable of processing nutrients, dealing with contaminant loads, maintaining its biodiversity and supporting secondary production. So you're looking at turbidity, how muddy the water is, sediment coming into the harbour, nutrient levels. Yes, that's right. So a lot of the harbours in New Zealand really don't have too big a problems with nutrients right now, but um, it is a growing problem and... It is a problem we should be really conscious of because around the world you see systems that have absolutely collapsed because of um, excess nutrient coming into the system, resulting in too much primary production, 
which sends the system into a very, very different state and we lose a lot of species and we lose a lot of the ecosystem services that these systems provide for us. So the trick with all of this is that um, the Tipping Points project is really focused on the very difficult question of when these systems undergo a tipping point. And by that I mean they undergo a very radical change in the way that they work as a result of often quite minor changes in the stresses that we impose on the system. So it's not simply the case that we've just driven the system to change because we've, we've polluted it too much or we've poured too much sediment in. But what we're focused on is when just a small change in the concentrations that we add in combination with other stresses is, is re- resulting in a big consequence in terms of the way that the ecosystem works. So you could think of it a bit as the straw that breaks the camel's back? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good analogy. So it's interesting, Conrad, as we've been walking, there's been quite a difference in the sound. So we started off on some sandy, cockley, shelly stuff, and then, then it got a bit muddier. Yeah, so as we, inc- as we change our land use patterns in the catchment, um, whenever we convert from one use to another... Generally, there's a, an input of, of sediment into the estuaries and harbours. And in New Zealand, we have very short, um, steep catchments, and there's a very, very high connectivity between the activities in the catchment and the delivery of that sediment into our estuaries. So, what's happened over time, and in New Zealand's landscapes changed radically. What took, you know, a thousand years in Europe, New Zealand's achieved in a couple of hundred years in terms of converting native forest into pasture and increasingly in the Auckland area from pasture into urbanised areas and the consequence of that is a, a delivery of very fine um, silt and clay, we're walking across some now and almost slipping over and pretty slick Yeah. <laughs> and that um, turbidity which changes the optical properties of the water and affects the plants, a lot of it ends up accumulating on the sediments as we can see now and it often is these very thin brown films and that fundamentally changes the texture of the sediment fundamentally changes the behaviour of the animals that are living in that sediment and even the composition and the diversity of animals that are living in that sediment and that has impacts into the biogeochemistry and it's a biogeochemistry that controls the way in which the nutrients are processed within the estuary it controls the availability of oxygen in these sediments and critically for systems that are experiencing increased nutrients and increased sediments, it changes the ability of the system to denitrify that nitrogen, which is taking the nitrogen that's available to support plant growth, which can cause a lot of the problems in estuaries, and converting it into a form that can't be used by the plants, mainly nitrogen gas. So the combination of increasing nutrients and increasing sediments can radically alter the ability of the system to process nutrients, and that has consequences for the system. Now we're just walking through some seagrass, so seagrass is usually a good sign in an estuary? Yeah, seagrass is generally a a good sign that the systems are are very healthy. Um, Back in the pre-European days, that seagrass expanse would probably be extended subtidally into the channels, and there's not so much subtidal seagrass around anymore, and that's primarily a consequence of the increasing turbidity within these systems. Now the seagrass and the intertidal systems 
has been able to survive. It's a refuge, if you like. And part of that is the ability of the seagrass, even when the tide's in, it might be quite turbid and there's not enough light reaching the seabed to support its production. But when the tide's out like today, then you can see that the seagrass is available to the light and they can continue to fix carbon and to grow and maintain themselves in this estuary. So that's why we've seen a lot of our estuaries and harbours now seagrass restricted just to the intertidal area. So let's just wind back, say, 250, 300 years ago. There would have been a lot more seagrass. What else would have been different about here? Less of this fine mud? Probably a lot less of the fine mud. Um, Fish populations probably would have been a lot denser. Um, Probably would have had a lot more shellfish um, populations as well. And the shellfish play an absolutely critical role in these ecosystems. Because? Well, uh, if you've got things like the cockles, for example, um, they're a filter feeder, like the pippies. And so what they're doing is they're acting as a natural biological filter. So that's part of the built-in resilience of the system. So you can increase sediment loads a little bit. You've got these massive beds of shellfish that are capable of sucking large volumes of water, passing it over a very, very fine gill surface, which filters out the silt and the clay and puts it into the seabed and helps keep the water clear. But as you increase that sediment loading, it begins to clog their gills and they can't grow and they can't reproduce and the densities begin to decrease. If you talk to the Kamatua for the region, they will talk about a landscape here that is very different from from even 30 or 50 years ago, let alone before that. Um, And they will talk about extensive seagrass and large cockles and being able to catch fish very easily, pretty much where we're standing right now at high tide. So 20, 30 years ago, even immediately around here, there would have been very few houses, just a few little little small traditional kinds of batches. It wouldn't be anywhere as urbanised as it is right now, um, and there wouldn't be the massive urban expansion that there is in the city. So the harbour would have been quite different, even though it has been affected by, by humans, as Conrad has been talking around since we've arrived in the country. There's a few mud snail tracks. And yeah, seen... so this really fine sort of orangey clay that you can see on the surface through here is, is kind of evidence of recent stuff that's come off the land. And if you walk out on these sand flats and other areas, especially after heavy rainstorms, you'll see these slicks of the sediment um, of this fine mud accumulating on top of the sand flats. And that represents a, a physical barrier for the diffusion of oxygen into the sediments and then that begins to impact upon the microbial processes, the ones that require oxygen. So you don't need very much of this stuff to radically alter the permeability of the sediments or how well those sediments are flushed by the waves and the tides. So the key point there is it's the microbes. So we've been talking about things like the cockles and the fish, but the primary processes here are working at a microbial level, aren't they? The primary processes are the interactions between the animals and the sediments and those microbes, and that's what this whole experiment is about. Okay, now we've caught up with the others, and things are about to happen. So at the moment we're just um, placing our benthic chambers and setting them up. They look to me a bit like a small square skylight that I might have in my roof with a perspex dome on it. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's a good description. They're a quarter metre squared and when they're pushed into the sediment they'll hold 25 litres of water Um, and when the tide comes in it will catch that and then we'll seal them with these lids. Um, And these chambers are connected with a couple of metres of tubing and these are attached um, to a stake and the stake does several things for us. 
We have a boy which marks the plot. So you um, can find it again. <laughs> yeah, so definitely so we can find it again. So when the tide's in, we know exactly um, which one we're looking at. Um, and also it holds these tubes for us. So at high tide, we can easily take a sample from from both um, both of these chambers. And So are you just going to suck water up that tube? Is that yeah, the plan? so what we do, that we um, just attach a syringe to the end um, and we pull it really slowly and it will um, take about 50 mils from the, from the chamber into the syringe for us um, and the reason that we we always have two chambers together one's a, one a light one which we just leave empty um, and a second one we cover with a shade cloth so it's completely dark inside and this one will give us just the respiration happening um, and no photosynthesis and so that's in a sense a bit like Either what A could be happening at night or B might be happening if the water becomes really muddy and the light just can't get through? Yep, so what happens is when the sun is out in the light chamber we measure photosynthesis of the benthic microalgae on the sediment surface whereas when we've got a black shade over top obviously that is um, cut out so we're only measuring the respiration of the animals within that chamber without the effects of photosynthesis. When you're running one of these full-scale experiments, how many of these chambers have you got out? We can do lots, but for this experiment we've been doing 18 per day. But we have in the past done more than that. We can do like up to 40 in a day if we need to, depending on the experiment. So do you stay out here through the whole tide cycle? Yes. Yeah. How, how deep does it get? Uh, it depends on the site. This site gets very deep, so we have to sample it um, using a boat. But some of our sites that are in the upper intertidal, we can just wade out to, so sometimes they only get up to our waist. But we all just put wetsuits on and get out here and sample them. It's quite fun. <laughs> so we also take... Um, a macrofauna core, which is what Kit's holding there. It's like a fat piece of perspex pipe. Yeah, yeah. So you just put it down to 150 mil, which is marked by the red tape. So mm. you've pushed it down. Put a bung in to make the seal. And you kind of just got to wriggle around to get it out without losing the suction. Normally we use a spade or something, but um, we don't want to disrupt the sediment too much. That's your sediment core taken, and it just gets popped in the Ziploc bag. Oh. <laughs> it's interesting because what we're looking at on the top is, is brownie looking mud, and it gets goes black pretty fast. Yeah, that's because on the sediment surface there's it's oxygenated, so um, all of the microbial processes that occur in the top centimetre or so of the sediment are driven by oxygen, whereas as you go deeper it is anoxic, so it's driven by more hydrogen sulphide processes. So that's why when you bring the sediment up it smells kind of like rotten eggs. You dig it over, there's a, a brown layer, a grey layer and a black layer. And that represents the boundary between the uh, where oxygen's available and where oxygen's unavailable. And in terms of nutrient processing, it, it represents a fundamental shift between the types of bacteria and the types of processes that are occurring across that interface. So if we're worried about the system and the estuaries being able to process nitrogen, it's that anoxic-oxic boundary that is the big driver of denitrification. So one of the important processes of denitrification is the conversion of breakdown of organic matter into ammonia and then from ammonia into nitrate. And that nitrate, that 
process from ammonia to nitrate is an oxic process. It's done by aerobic bacteria. So you need oxygen. You need oxygen. But then the denitrification step is an anaerobic process. So you need those two boundaries, those two biogeochemical conditions in very close proximity. So you have the availability of nitrate, it diffuses down into that anoxic layer and the denitrifiers can use that nitrate and convert it into N2 gas. So if you lose the oxic layer and if we eutrophy the estuaries and have a lot of ulva blooms or there's a lot of oxygen consuming processes, a lot of organic matter to break down, then we lose that oxygenated layer from the surface of those sediments and then we lose the ability to denitrify and that means there's more inorganic nutrients around the place. So what happens with all the, the nitrates then if it's not getting broken down? Well then they're available to fuel primary production. So in a healthy ecosystem or a healthy estuary, those nitrates and that ammonia will often diffuse up into the water column or up to the sediment surface. And if you've got a nice light-filled estuary, you have a lot of microphytobenthos there or microscopic plants sitting right at that surface and they're utilising those nutrients, converting it into plant biomass that then fuels the estuarine food web. Now if you turn the lights off, for example, by making the estuary more turbid, then those nutrients come up into the water column and they begin to fuel pelagic production or water column production. And then that begins to make it even darker at the sediment surface and you start fueling this kind of eutrophication spiral, if you like, where it just accelerates and you lose the ability to process those nutrients and denitrify. So it's like a runaway feedback loop. Yes. (laughs) And that's what you think might lead to quite a sudden tipping point? Yeah, that this idea of feedbacks is really important in trying to understand how these systems will change suddenly. So um, as Conrad was saying before, what we're really interested in is the interactions between things. And if you think about the processes that Conrad's just been talking about, if it were purely a physical system, there would be one barrier between the oxic and anoxic layer, and it would just basically sit there. And the bugs themselves would actually have to be moving up and down to be switching on and off in terms of whether they were doing one thing or another. But the sediment, of course, is full of, full of organisms, and some of them are very important little pumps that pump Uh, the the water that sits between the sand grains up and down. And so as they do that, they're basically uh, flushing oxic or anoxic water over the bacteria. And so they're rapidly changing in any one part of the sediment near that interface whether things can be undergoing processes that require oxygen or processes that require no oxygen. So that means that the rates of this conversion of nitrogen increase really rapidly. So then there's some feedbacks going on between the number of animals that are in the sediment and their behaviour, the microbial system and how it's functioning and processing the nitrogen. Those animals feed on this microphytobenthos layer that we've been talking about. So that's their primary food resource. So releasing the nutrients from the seafloor can mean that those animals um, are doing a good thing for the plants that they're actually grazing on. That's like a situation on a a dairy farm where the more cows you'd put on the field, the more grass you would grow, which is not the way that it works on land. Um, So this way is much more efficient. Now, you've got something to do with your sediment sample, so I see a sieve. Yeah, so this is just a um, sieve with a mesh size of half a millimetre. You just put the um, sediment corn sample straight into the sieve, rinse out the bag... Do you want everything out of your bag? 
Yeah, so you want to get as much as you possibly can out from the bag. Yeah, so there's heaps of uh, little dead stuff. You can see some worms in there as you pull so it you're apart. you're breaking it apart. Yeah. And you have uh, a lot of Macamona shells. So I'll just rinse that off. So one of the key thing, organisms we've been focusing on is um, this little guy here, Macamona liliana. It's a, a wedge shell, and it's... Um, probably the unsung hero of a lot of our sand flats. So when we've been selecting sites throughout the country, we've been focusing on this particular animal, so where this animal uh, exists in reasonable densities. And this little animal um, lives um, probably between 7 to 10 centimetres beneath the surface, and it's a deposit feeder. So if we have a look around here, we can see often these little bird-like footprints on the surface of the sediment here. Yep. And what, what is it? That's the feeding traces of this animal. So it has a, a siphon that comes up to the surface and it sucks off the microphytobenthos. But the exhalant siphon, so it sucks in the water, the water comes over the gill, the particles and the food is taken out of it, and then the water is pumped out. Now the interesting thing about this animal, for all kinds of funky reasons, is the exhalant siphon is at depth. And it's at depth probably to avoid it being eaten by fish and predators. But what that does is it drives a pressure differential. So it's bringing water in at the surface and it's pumping it out at depth. Right? So what that means is you're adding a little pump source of water that's bringing oxygenated water down deep and it's driving change. It's driving a pressure of water back up towards the surface. And we've shown in some of our previous work that we've done in the Kaipara Harbour that this particular animal plays a really important role in processing those nutrients. It's adding oxygen down at depth, which Simon was talking about earlier and how important that is to denitrification. And it's also pushing nutrients towards the surface that can be trapped by the microphytobenthos that's there. When we elevate the nutrients, and this is some some uh, previous work has shown this, then this guy doesn't like it so much, and they begin to move out of the plot. And when you lose that, and you lose that little pore water pump pressure that's in these sediments, things begin to change, and they can change quite radically. So as part of our work, we've been focusing on this particular animal. You're right, it's an unsung hero. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of density have you got of it in... in sediments like this? Um, they never really exist, exist in super high density so you don't get them at the same densities that you might get pippies or cockles which could go to a thousand per square metre. A good sized density is probably in the order of two to three hundred per square metre so they tend to space themselves out and that's probably a, to try and get at the food so they don't interfere with each other when they're feeding on the surface but the effect of the animal is much larger than kind of if the animal's only a centimetre or two in size, that pore water pressure gradient that it generates through its feeding can extend over 10 to 15 centimetres. There's this halo effect around the animal that um, means its influence extends much greater than you might think. And puppies and cockles aren't having the same effect? No, they... Uh... Cockles are right at the sediment surface, so they're a filter feeder too. Uh, the other one's a deposit feeder. So they're sucking water in and pumping water back out. And because they inhabit just that top several centimetres of the surface, there's no pressure differential. The water's coming in at the sediment water interface and it's going back out. Now, they play a really important role, but not the same role as the, um, as the Macamona do in the sediment. So they're excreting ammonia, if you like. They're wiggling that surface sediment around and they're helping fuel that benthic process primary production, but their impact potentially on the nitrogen cycle isn't as great as these guys because of that pore water pressure and the oxygenation of water down deeper. So at the moment this sounds very much like understanding what's going on here right now. Are you manipulating things in any way? Yes, yeah, so um, as Simon talked about earlier, uh, the nationwide experiment has been 
working on establishing turbidity gradients because it's very hard to manipulate turbidity. And so what we've done embedded within this gradient nationwide um, around the stressure associated with turbidity, we've also, in our plots that we've set up, we've manipulated the nutrient concentration within the sediments. And um, we've done this by adding um, a little bit of uh, nutrients down deep in the sediments, and that percolates up through. And the idea behind that is to try and elevate the nutrients just a little bit. We're not trying to break the system. We know if we add a lot of nutrients, we can make the system look really awful. What we're trying to get at is how, just with a little bit, a little bump of nutrients that may simulate more nutrients coming in off the land, how that system responds to that, and those interaction networks that Simon was talking about earlier, how they're altered and changed. And that gives us information about the tipping points. And what we're really interested in is how that turbidity of stressor on top of the nutrient stress begins to alter those processes. So when you say you've added nutrients, what have you done? Have you added like a fertiliser tablet the way you do in a pot plant? Effectively, yes. Um, very small amounts of it um, down deep in the sediments. Um, it's a, a urea-based um, pot plant. Um, so that's the nitrogen that we're adding to the system. And um, the students here have spent a good number of days out in the field coring these sediments and putting in a little shot of fertiliser down deep in the sediments. And we've done these experiments a couple of times before and we know the amounts we're adding are relatively small, we know there's no catastrophic effect on the ecosystem and we're just manipulating this on a relatively small scale as well. So how long do you leave the nutrients in before you go back and see what's happening? So we've been with this experiment, we've been coming back every several months after the addition and we measure the amount of ammonia in the pore water in the sediments. And we know um, for several months we've used a very slow-release fertiliser that we can keep it elevated above the background levels for at least six to seven to eight months, and that's been our time frame. Because we want time for the system to evolve and respond and these, these changes may not be instantaneously and rapid as the animals move out of the plots and some animals move into the plots to these changing conditions and this is why um, Steph is interested in running and extending the experiment over a couple of recruitment seasons so we can get some idea of the longer term impacts of this. So is this the first time that a study like this has been done nationwide here in New Zealand? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I'm pretty sure it's the first study that's been done like this anywhere in the world that's focused on trying to manipulate the systems to look to see how um, how much risk there is for us in, in breaking these feedback processes that can lead to these tipping point changes. And there aren't actually that many large-scale experiments that are done in coastal ecology anywhere for many reasons it's um it's logistically difficult (laughs) (laughs) so it's a pretty unique opportunity but you know we're working on a national science challenge so it's appropriate we do a national scale experiment i reckon thanks simon that was simon thrush from the institute of marine science at the university of auckland we also heard from conrad pilditch at the university of waikato doctoral student steph mangan postdoctoral researcher Rebecca Gladstone-Gallagher and summer student Kurt Squires are also all at Waikato University. And the Tipping Points project is part of the Sustainable Seas National Science Challenge. I'm Alison Balance and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 8th of March 2018. Here in the Southern Hemisphere it's officially autumn and the first of the Godwits have started to leave New Zealand en route to their breeding grounds in the Northern Hemisphere. Which reminds me there are several great Godwit stories in the Our Changing World back catalogue which you can easily find. Just head to our webpage, 
rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld and search for Godwit and Allison, spelt with one L. You'll hear about Godwit's in Christchurch, Foxton Beach and Miranda and find out about bird photography, canon netting and the fine ornithological art of twinkling. You're welcome. We're available as a podcast from various apps, including the RNZ app, Apple Podcasts on your mobile phone and iTunes on your computer, as well as Spotify, Stitcher and Radio Public. Look out for us on Twitter and Facebook where we are RNZ Science. Bye for now. Hey kōna mai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.